Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation can be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we explore aspects of the UK innovation ecosystem and draw on a recent discussion held in London with a range of ecosystem actors from industry, academia, technology and media. I'm joined today by Ash Arora. Ash is the former investments lead for the $100 million Polygon Ventures Fund for investing in early-stage Web3 startups globally, with partners such as SoftBank, Tiger Global, Sequoia, Accel and Lightspeed. She is now the youngest partner at Local Globe in London, leading their Web3 and blockchain practice. They've been long-standing partners with London Business School and run the Newton Venture Programme to help boost VC and entrepreneurial opportunities on campus. Ash, you joined us recently for our second launch event of the Innovation Quotient in London. Can you give us some of the takeaways you had from that conversation? Absolutely. So I think some of the biggest key takeaways were just the framework in which the innovation geographical regions are divided globally and what are the different factors that impact directly as well as indirectly. So I think some of the biggest ones that we discussed was intra-country collaboration being a very important metric that goes beyond just the national level policy and opinion on certain sectors, on certain commercial ramifications of those sectors, as well as the ease with which regulatory support is given for the businesses that are developing in the same geography, as well as the heightened sort of role that inclusion and diversity play in building together what basically creates like the smart cities framework. Um, where also the idea is not just to kind of build and grow, but also to maintain that over a period of decades going forward. There was also this entire conversation, I remember, that we had around global action being a key driver and just the economies of scale create an environment where previously globalization would result in lower resources for certain geographies. But now in the last few years, what we saw was deglobalization having been triggered by COVID and other factors which took us into the conversation around data sharing agreements and mechanisms, where we again had a very wonderful conversation on specifically on the UK as to what um, we are doing, as well as what other sort of investors and startups are trying to achieve, along with the right regulators and policymakers in the room from day one. Well, thank you for putting out some of the key points there. We looked at the innovation quotient from the sort of macro level the global findings and so on. And then the intent really was to localize that for the UK. So with yourself and the other participants that we had, the intention was really to bring together a cross-section of that innovation ecosystem in the UK and and get their perspectives. Um, So a couple of the, the areas that we dug into in some detail, one of them was around AI. Second one was around issues related to education. The Innovation Quotient notes that the UK has a very expensive tertiary education system. So we explored some of the implications of that. And the third one was really looking at this end of the era of cheap money and what that means in terms of funding for investment, particularly disruptive um, investment. But to come back to this issue of education, the UK comes in just behind the US in terms of the um, 
unaffordability uh, of higher education. The UK comes in at number two globally in terms of its ranking in the innovation quotient. But investing in the people who can be part of that innovation ecosystem seems to be a bit of a, a roadblock or a challenge. But also, does it matter? Um, the good things are mostly expensive. So is there room for improving the, the cost that students bear for educating themselves in the UK? Of course there is. But is it going to be at the cost of the heightened demand that we have? No. We just got to increase the supply to sort of meet the demand so that the price automatically goes back down. Adam Smith would be, would be proud of me for saying it's just the invisible hand of the market. That's what it is. Indeed. And over recent decades, the number of international students increased quite dramatically. And how is that sort of feeding into the, into the talent pool? And particularly when we're thinking about um, innovation and access to people with the skills, for example, technology skills or sustainability related skills. The fact that some of the top UK universities, when we named the top five, they rank um, within the top 20 globally which is honestly a moment to be very proud of the quality of education that is delivered here. There is obviously also the brand value of these universities, but the biggest quality metric should be the quality of students who are graduating from those universities and what they are going and doing in the world. Um, I would say, you know, there are incentive mechanisms, such as the ones that we discussed in Singapore, where universities and the government tries very hard to retain the international students and have this thing where they request the student to work within Singapore for two to three, four years after graduation, and then they waive off part of the tuition fee, which is, of course, like a massive debt for somebody in their 20s after university. We need to build an incentive mechanisms for international students to come in and build something. They can sort of take up jobs. They can start their own companies. There are so many accelerators that are now in London that focus on university graduates and help them with visa processes. They help them with different kinds of funding that they would need to start off their business. We also mentioned how visas are really expensive. And, you know, as an international person on a visa in London, I know the cost that my firm had to bear. Those are the kind of support mechanisms that need to be looked into and probably just creating a statistical model to quantify the impact of these over the last, let's say, decade of data could be presented in front of policymakers and regulators because I feel that the policy environment that we have in London and the UK is very conducive, not just for innovation, but international collaborative innovation, which is where universities play a very big role in terms of attracting that international talent into the country. And indeed, the intent for the innovation quotient is to identify some of these gaps and therefore opportunities and get the relevant actors aware of them and think about ways in which we can try to plug those gaps. Um, and this seems to be a, well, it's a politically charged issue at the same time. Um, let's move on. One of the other areas, and it's very topical given all of the uh, discussion around uh, AI, I wonder if you recall your take on that conversation and where the UK should be focusing its attention when it comes to the application of AI. Absolutely. So I remember uh, mentioning the science and technology framework by the UK government, which has an entire page is dedicated to productizing AI and helping make different cities within the UK the next AI hub in Europe as well as globally. And the regulatory sandbox that needs to be created to ensure that we are bringing in the right stakeholders as well as the innovators being conservative when it comes to the retail impact of it, but at the same time trying to create a very conducive environment for this kind of innovation and talent pool to accumulate 
and create the next wave of AI companies as well as the AI support that is needed globally, keeping in mind the way it's going to impact the businesses. This is basically, if you think about it, very much in line with what the UK did a decade or 15 years ago regarding fintech. And London has some of the highest fintech unicorns across the world for a single city. Um, that right there is basically the directional thinking that we need for AI as well. At the same time, such as the Manchester government is very keen to make Manchester as one of the next AI hubs. One of the biggest goals for the city right now is to create 10,000 AI-enabled jobs within Manchester. And that is across different spectrums. So we looked into the data of how many people go to university, how many are university graduates, how many are engineers, how many uh, who did not end up going to university but are still very much employed in the services side of things like white-collar jobs. I did feel that 10,000 is a very achievable number. Imagine what 10,000 jobs creation would be. It makes me incredibly excited about the potential for the UK or any of the cities within the UK to be a massive AI hub. Indeed, and it speaks to, I think, one of the top findings at the macro level for the innovation quotient around the importance of collaboration, the importance of clusters. Um, more broadly, thinking about AI, from your perspective, from your in the investment world, where are you seeing some of the activity in the UK when it comes to AI? What are some of the most exciting areas and promising areas for you? That's a loaded question. Um, so <laughs> there's so much that's happening in AI. There's a part in your research um, report which ranks the number of companies by country. And I believe UK was third when it came to the number of AI companies being born like globally after US and China. So, of course, there's so much innovation happening in the UK when it comes to AI. DeepMind, for example, was born in London a decade ago, which eventually got acquired by Google and is literally the AI hub of Google, along with Google Brain globally. And we have at our fund, we've invested in 48 AI companies in the last eight years. And the spectrum of AI companies goes all the way from hardware to the application layer, which consumers use. So there are different types of AI tools. You have developer tools, you have services, you have specific themes around like safety and performance. On the developer tool sides, there are possibly like two types that we are seeing, which is one is of course open source, Hugging Face being one of the biggest ones. Then we have on the other side would be SaaS models. Then you have specific language models. And then there's also this layer of privacy that we see, which is across zero knowledge uh, machine learning proofs. All of these AI tools can come together and create the next generation of applications. And that's the last layer. So applications can be two types, B2B and B2C. So B2B could be like all the different kind of fundamental business layers that you can think of across health, retail, construction, logistics, legal. When I'm talking about these sectors, all of them have come out of like UK as well. Like we've seen them come out. And then on the B2C side, I'm sure that on the consumer side, you've seen like a bunch, ChatGPT plugin being like the biggest one. Um, we've seen finance, we've seen in travel, we've seen in education, we've made a couple of investments, Fundament, Kino, so on and so forth. So like there's just so much. Every week it's like I'm seeing a new use case, honestly, on the consumer side. And it's so fascinating to just kind of see the activity and the innovation that's happening in the space. It's an incredibly vibrant scene that you, you outlined there. Some issues that come from that, though, I think we mentioned data sharing earlier on and the ability to do that, but also we touched on sort of regulatory framework. How should we regulate AI? It seems that the, the UK is taking or adopting a, a principles-based approach. Is that the right way to go from your perspective? 
at a more personalized level, majority of the policy frameworks and regulatory frameworks that have been created have been done through litigation. You know, back in the day, YouTube, for example, was like the poster child for the new internet and how majority of the regulators were against it to the point that there was a newspaper article <laughs> that discouraged people from using YouTube and putting up their private content. And YouTube is where we know it is today. Um, so it's just become like the DNA, which honestly I don't disagree with. The policy makers and regulators always need to think of the retail person, like retail investor from a monetary point of view, retail impact at an individual level, at a children under 18 level of social media, so on and so forth. So it's very good that they actually think in that direction. But at the same time, if you preempt with the same conservative directional thinking, it could potentially result in stifling of innovation. So there is, there is a case to be made if you see in the last decade as well for fintech, for blockchain specifically, where I've spent a lot of time as well. We have seen a lot of innovation that has occurred, but at the same time, a lot of conservative policies come out which I think blockchain being the most recent example we've seen in the last one year in the US, it has truly, really suppressed, I would say, the kind of creativity and innovation that occurred, let's say, three years ago, which of course, by default, reduces fraud as well. But what's the trade-off? Do we want to be slight risk takers, allow innovation to happen and catch and preempt the potential fraud that could occur? Or let innovation thrive and then at the first sign of potential fraud, you go after those single players instead of making a blanket statement across the sector. So I think the latter is definitely perfect for early stage tech innovation. Well, let's see how that unfolds. And just to turn our thoughts to a further area, we, we had a look at the end of the era of cheap money. If we sort of go back to the global financial crisis, central banks around the world, not least here in the UK, slashed interest rates down to zero, in some cases negative interest rates. And then about 18 months ago or so that flipped. And now we have a considerably higher interest rate in environment. We've also seen a lot of sort of seed angel VC capital funding has dried up. But again, from your perspective, is this necessarily a negative or in contrast, can we actually make a case to say that those firms who have a very innovative business model, particularly where it's targeted, it's solving for some of the, the challenges that we have in the world, maybe that's climate change, or maybe that's around financial inclusion, for example, that actually they stand a better chance of getting funded now. What's your take on that? It's the logic of coffee. Do you like a froofy, frothy cappuccino or do you like a direct, no-nonsense espresso, right? So I think the froth has disappeared. That's what it is. The coffee bean is definitely still there. So in the VC lingo, we generally call this as the signal-to-noise ratio, which has completely flipped. Earlier, the amount of noise that you would see, like the number of texts you would get, the number of emails and sort of cold outreaches and warm intros that you would get would be like in the hundreds every week. And now that number is, let's say, below 50 um, at the most. So for us to go through all of the material has made lives easier. And we are now seeing a higher proportion of these companies be actually innovative, be actually something that can truly impact the world in a very positive manner. So definitely more signal and less noise now. And at the same time, just like a better sentiment across even founders that have received capital and are building the right businesses. Of course, there's a conversation to be made around a lot of really talented um, founders not getting the access to capital at the growth stage where capital has become even more expensive. Now, that can be solved by giving the business time. 
majority of the founders that I'm working with or our fund is working with, we can see this sort of difference in the way the founder is now thinking. Um, he or she could basically now say, oh, you know, it's very hard for me to build this business because I don't have access to capital because that's what they were used to. Or they could have the right investors, they could have the right team, and they could have themselves the right DNA, where they say, oh, this is a great opportunity because there's less noise, there's less nonsense in the market. So it just reprioritizes, you know, sort of the internal strategies in a lot of ways as well. Indeed. I wonder now if I could ask you for any further point that was raised in the conversation or that came into your thinking, perhaps following the conversation that we had that's relevant to this. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I basically started thinking about was on the educational piece where we discussed that colleges almost had become optional in a lot of geographies because of obviously the higher cost, but also that there's so much innovation and potential in the world that people think, hey, why do I need to go spend three, four years at university? Let me just do what I think I should do and go chase that. So Thiel Fellowship, I would say, was like the beginning of that trend, maybe over a decade ago, where they have this system, like an accelerator of sorts, where they call it stopping out of college. They give like a few hundred K to the sort of winners, like 30 winners every year. And they literally stop out of college. They don't drop out. So they always have the option to go back to their university and complete their degree. But in the interim, chase their ideas. When you look at the number of people who ended up going back to university, that number was very low. I don't remember the exact number. It was a single digit number. And the number of massive companies that have been born out of that one fellowship is absolutely insane. There was a some number floating around like north of $500 billion of value has been created by these fellows in the last decade. So that right there, I think it's a paradigm shift, I would say, in education, where education is no longer restricted to a university or a degree. The attitude of the individual has started mattering more because anyone can be trained to do anything. Let's focus on the right people. Let's hire the right attitude and help them upskill themselves and train them and do courses with them so that they can deliver on the job that they are on. So I feel that this could also be a great way in which all the different sectors like AI, all of the tech innovation sectors could be impacted. And there's a lot of money, I wouldn't say cheap money, but money that's definitely um, now increasingly available for even the younger people to go and pursue. I think that's a very big afterthought that I had. Well, I'm glad that we stimulated some thinking there. And that's a fascinating uh, example of that. <laughs> Just on reflection, thinking about the UK innovation ecosystem and particularly that, that focus on innovation for socioeconomic progress, what one thing would you like to see happen within the UK to promote that? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think one of the key drivers for me as an investor, like why I got into investing, was the impact of tech that I saw. I was at a non-profit and I saw that tech had impacted people more than all the non-profit funding combined in the last decade. So that's literally why I became an investor. And one of the biggest sort of positive outcomes that I see in impact is the reduction in inequality. You know, there's this book called The Wealth of Nations, which basically says this one thing that massive amounts of wealth is never earned, it's stolen. So my question is, how can any business, any government, any regulator, any policymaker think of businesses that reduce inequality yet generating a positive impact on the world from a value and a product perspective? That could be a very interesting thing that I'd want to see and any interesting papers I'd want to read on. 
Well, fantastic. And thank you for sharing that as well. That's maybe something that we can come back to and, uh, and examine in a, in a later episode. Um, Ash, uh, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. It was amazing to hear the thoughts and the sort of insights from the report as well as just being here today. It's such an honor. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.